In this final uh, session, we're going to look at gospel metaphors, which is a way to think about communicating, uh, testifying to the gospel of God's grace in ways that are culturally discerning and personally meaningful. Uh, that they, they, uh, they actually intersect the, the cultural realities and idolatries of people's lives in a personal, uh, winsome way. So when people hear the gospel in New England, they probably, if they're close, they think about the death of a Jewish man in the first century, and it seems rather irrelevant to their lives. And so the challenge is to, to take the, the great news of the information of the gospel and to make it meaningful and believable. Francis Schaeffer is a great uh, apologist, uh, evangelist, the 20th century. He was asked if he had an hour with a non-Christian, how would he spend it? He said, oh, that's easy. I would spend the first 55 minutes listening to them, and then the last five minutes I would have something to say. And today we've reversed it. We want to give a 55-minute sermon and ask people to respond. And I think Schaefer has a lot of wisdom for us to heed uh, in the 21st century. That, in fact, people are fed up with presentational, information-driven, Hendrick, heaven-oriented evangelism. And they want to be loved, and they want to be known, and they want to know why the gospel is worth believing. Right? And so uh, in this final session, what we're going to do is try to move towards a more believable gospel in our communication and uh, life with others. <clears throat> Uh, with each gospel metaphor I mentioned in the last section, there is a hope underlying each metaphor. So the gospel of new creation or regeneration, um, that, that gospel metaphor that um, the old is gone and the new has come, that in Christ there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This idea that we have a new identity, that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, appeals to hope, okay? People, people that are ser searching for hope, that have gone through suffering, that have been through a, a difficult life, that want a fresh start, uh, people seeking hope are going to find the gospel of new creation appealing and meaningful. Now, that same person may not really want acceptance. That, that may not be on the surface of their story. But if we listen to people and we ask them meaningful questions, what will happen is you'll begin to see on the surface or just below the surface of their stories, there are longings, desires, dreams, hopes, fears. And that's the deep stuff of life. And of all people on planet Earth, Christians should be conversant with people on the deep things of life. I like to think about it in terms of questions. We ask a lot of kind of... Uh, First level questions, hey, how's it going, what do you, what's going on, you know, uh, what do you, you know, what did you do today, kind of a small talk, first level. The Christians should, should move through that into the secondary and, and third tertiary levels of conversation where you ask more deeper questions. The second level might be questions about your life, about history, kind of horizontal questions, if you will. You know, where did you come from, um, how did that influence you, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of patterns in people's life, surfacing it through, just getting to know. Like, everybody likes to be known. People like to know uh, that someone cares about their history, about their story. And then there's the tertiary level of, of your beliefs about your story, your values. And those questions go something like, well, how did you feel about that? 
What do you long for? What are you afraid of? They tap right into the, uh, the, the, the main artery of life, and they, they tell someone that we care. Because you have, to, you have to give up on time and give in to love to sit around for those conversations. You have to put others, consider others more important than yourself, Philippians 2. And so um, as we get to know people, um, that 55 minutes can be populated by ask, asking a lot of questions. I remember in, uh, just after I graduated from college, I realized I was a terrible conversationalist. And that, uh, you know, I just kind of just talked, did small talk. And I, what I realized is that if people really are going to receive grace and ministry, that I had to ask questions. It's uh, kind of a light bulb moment for me. And so I, I found a book. It was called, um, what is it, Practicing the Presence of People. It's a play off of Brother Lawrence's Practicing the Presence of God, which is a great book. Um, well, this is Practicing the Presence of People. I was just such, such an imbecile. I needed people to help me practice their presence, you know. Like, how do you love people? That's basically what I was trying to learn. And, uh, well, one way, one very powerful way you love people is you, you ask them questions, not just primary level, but secondary and third level questions. And then as you listen to their story, you'll begin to discern cultural idolatries, longings, needs, hopes, dreams that the gospel addresses because the gospel does address everything. And so um, want to put that in front of us as the paradigm uh, the Jesus paradigm as we saw him uh, interacting with different people in having gospel conversations in being an inefficient evangelist, okay? Um, so what we'll do, we don't have time to go through all of them, so I'll, I'll pick a few um, metaphors and then um, tell you some stories. So try to be practical about how I've done this and hopefully that's helpful to you. I met Reed. Um, well, we first found Reed. He was uh, naked, upside down, passed out on Congress Street, which is the main uh, road that runs into the Capitol in Austin, Congress Street. And uh, so we got him into rehab. I showed up. Um, I made my way to the lockdown facility. At the door, I was greeted by an armed guard, and he told me to empty my pockets. And I had my cell phone and everything. And the gravity of the moment began to settle in on me as I realized, man, this is, I can't even have stuff. So I went back to my car, began praying, and it was a Saturday afternoon, to be honest. I didn't even want to be there. I wanted to hang out with my family, but uh, I knew that, that uh, Reed was in rehab and he needed some help. So um, I made my way through a, a painful 40-minute advocate video and uh, just tried to pray and ask God to prepare me to respond to, to whatever I was going to meet on the other side. I'd met Reed once before. I didn't really know him. Um, I walk out. It's a hot Texas summer. The ground is cracked. Uh, smoke hangs in the air from all the recovering addicts. There's cemetery-like furniture, you know, the kind of the stone stuff that's got cracks in it. And um, it's just kind of a foreboding atmosphere, uh, an environment of, of, of despair, of hopelessness. And so I saw Reed, and, and uh, I, we walked over to one of those cracked tables and sat down. And I looked across the table at him, and I said, Reed, I know this isn't what you dreamed about when you were a kid. I know you didn't want to end up here. So tell me, like, tell me how you got here. And so Reed begins to tell me a story of how he was adopted as a child and uh, was raised in West Texas, was exposed to church, but didn't feel accepted in church, felt like he was on the outskirts. And so eventually, in, in, uh, around age, uh, I think, 12, he began to use drugs because he found that when he was using drugs, he was accepted by the other drug users. And so he found a community uh, of people that would accept him. 
And, uh, but then he realized, well, when he wasn't using, all of a sudden the community fell apart. You're only accepted on the condition of your drug use. And so he began to use more aggressive, aggressive drugs to treat the, the sense of loneliness and despair. And you, you fast forward the story, and uh, here he is across the table from me. He's bloated. Only half of his hair has died because he couldn't afford to re-dye it. It's disheveled. His uh, front teeth are all rotted out from meth, so he has no front teeth. Uh, just kind of an ugly sight. He's uh, in his early 20s, but he looks like he's maybe in his 40s after lots of drugs. Uh, just, just an old, tired, broken man I'm looking at. And as he begins to tell me his story, uh, I begin thinking, how is the gospel going to be believable to him? Right? Do I just say, well, Reed, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe that, everything will be better. It just felt pretty trite, you know, as, as powerful and as deep as that is. I had a sense that Reed needed to hear something other than that phrase. And uh, so I was praying and asking the Holy Spirit to, to bring things to mind. And I said, uh, you know, Reed, have you ever thought about God? Like, how does God play into all of this? And as he did, articulated his, his loneliness and despair. And, and he said, oh, I, I used to believe in God, but I've been an atheist for a while. Like, after this life, I just kind of, you know, turned my back on God. And um, <clears throat> as, I, as I looked at him in the eyes and I saw this broken man in, in disrepair, it just became apparent to me that he needed hope, you know? There were other things going on, the loneliness, the need for approval, the rejection, the need for acceptance. But on the, kind of on the surface there was this longing uh, for a new life, for, for the... the <laughs> that there's hope for something beyond his present state, right? And so I, I began to, I said, Rita, can I tell you about the gospel of new creation? I said, the Bible talks about uh, this possibility that if you put your faith in Jesus, that your old man can be exiled, sent into exile, and that you can become a new man uh, before God the Father and through what Jesus does for you. And, and you become a new creation in his eyes, and, and you have a new ability to enjoy life with his spirit and and I just kind of, you know, explained what new creation is about. And he, he looked at me and he kind of said, yeah, yeah, that sounds kind of good. But, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, I just don't know if I believe in God. And I said, well, would you be willing to learn more about this and to read the Bible? And uh, he said, well, I don't have a copy. I said, I'll, I'll get you a copy of the Bible. And I got him a copy of the Bible and, and walked out. And two years later, Reed stood up in front of our church congregation on a Sunday morning kicked the doors off of his addiction, kicked the doors off of his despair, and talked about how he put his faith in Jesus and become a new creation in Christ Jesus. See, Reed heard a gospel that was worth believing. He, 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 uh, he, he wasn't, per se, looking for justification by faith, acceptance. He was in a broken-down life, in a broken-down situation. He was longing for hope. Right? And there are people in your life, people in your group's lives, in your church's life, in your circle, that are desperately seeking hope. Right? And it may not be an addiction story. It may be a, a different kind of hopelessness, um, a, a hopelessness around employment, a hopelessness around uh, some other facet of life. But if you're listening, you may in fact discern that this is what's presenting itself to you. And so that we would listen to their story uh, ask questions and surface the need so that we can apply the gospel of grace like a healing balm to the wounds 
in people's lives. That's the gospel of new creation. Um, there are other gospel metaphors in the Bible, you know. Um, I think of uh, the gospel of, of adoption, that uh, even though we were slaves to sin, that through the Spirit in our heart, who cries out, Abba, Father, look at Galatians and Romans, that we are indeed, the Spirit testifies that we are indeed the sons of God, that we can know the enduring approval and love of a perfect Heavenly Father. There are people that have dad issues in your congregation. There are people that have dad issues and approval issues uh, from the life that they've, they've lived, your neighbors, your coworkers, and underneath their story, they are longing for unconditional approval. But they're looking for it in, in, in sex, they're looking for it in, in their employer, they overwork so that their boss will think great of them. Uh, it, you'll notice this is good for Christians and non-Christians, right? This, this kind of applying the gospel metaphors. We all need the gospel of grace, right? There, there are no graduates in the school of grace, right? We are all undergraduates in, in, in the school of grace. And so um, you can apply this to your church, you can apply this uh, to people who are far from Jesus. Well, I met James. Uh, you're going to think I'm in rehab every, every day. Um, but I met J James in kind of a rehab facility. Well, it wasn't a facility. It was a recovery weekend. Um, and my wife had gone to it, and she asked me to, to go through it. And I kind of reluctantly went, you know, and um, just thought maybe I'll pick up some tips for pastoring, you know, maybe learn how to counsel better. And so I enroll in this, in this uh, I think it was three-day weekend. Coming down the stairs, and I see a guy who's probably about five foot two. It looks like there's just a, sh a, a, a dark cloud over him. You know, his shoulders are slumped over. There's just a heaviness about him. It kind of downcast, uh, even literally downcast. Like, just kind of one of these guys, you know, looking down. His clothes are all too big. Um, very, very dark circles under his eyes. And as soon as I saw him, the Holy Spirit just riveted my attention to him. There's a whole room full of people and so I went over and I introduced myself to him and began talking to him. Well, once we got into the room and we got past the introduction and we lined up in our U-shaped circle so we could all see each other for recovery, um, we were asked, uh, you know, why are you here? James was the first person to stand up. James stood up and said, I'm here because I have no hope. I'm here because uh, my birth mother left me. She doesn't love me. I use drugs to compensate. I've been using drugs since I was 12 years old. Um, I have no hope, and I don't expect this weekend to help me. Thanks. Sat down. I, um, a few minutes later, we were broken up into groups, and we were asked to find a buddy, <laughs> uh, to, to find your kind of buddy for the weekend. And so um, I made a beeline for James and uh, said, hey, man, would you be my buddy? He's like, yeah, sure. And uh, we began a process of intense uh, relationship building as we bore our souls to one another over the weekend and went through some of these uh, therapy questions. And as I got to know James's story, it came out that, you know, this uh, source of bitterness and despair around his birth mother was, was profound. He told me that, you know, I'll do some of the stuff they tell me to do, but the one thing I'm not going to do is forgive my mom. I even found her later in life, and she still rejected me. Uh, I went and I tried to live with her, and she favored my older brother. And so I don't care what they say. I'm not going to forgive her. And so I just, you know, gave him space and just said, I understand. I mean, it would be really hard for me to forgive her too. And we just we went out on smoke breaks together and talked about life and the challenges and did our buddy exercises. And it came a point, it's pretty intense, where you, 
you go through some pretty deep exercises to surface anger and guilt and shame. And so um, we were in this exercise, and James was working through some stuff, and uh, <clears throat> he had some real breakthroughs in anger and uh, things that had been done to him in the past. And, and then we asked about his mom. And James uh, looked at me. We'd been doing this for three, three days, kind of. And he looked at me, and uh, he knew I was a pastor now, a follower of Jesus, and he said, I want my faith back. It turned out that James had been exposed to Christianity at a young age, Methodist church, and he said, I want my faith back. So I, I'd been listening to James' story for an unusual amount of time on a weekend, so I had kind of a good sense of where he was, and I, I knew that adoption, the gospel of adoption, was just what he was desperate for. Like, he had become like a son to me. He was clinging to me. I even had other people, uh, workers in the program, say, he, he, he loves you so much. He re respects you so much. Um, you have a great opportunity with this guy. And uh, so in that moment, he's looking at me. He's like, I want my faith back. There's tears streaming down his face. I put both of my hands on his shoulders, and I looked at him. I said, James, I want to tell you a story. It comes from the Gospels. And it's, uh, it's, it's called the story of the, uh, of the prodigal son sometimes. And uh, the, it, it's a story where a, a son runs off and blows it, blows his life, blows his inheritance. And uh, he decides to come back. And he wants to see his dad again. And he begins making his way back to, to his father. And his father uh, doesn't stand there on the porch, kind of just shaking his finger, wagging at him in shame, waiting for him to come back and make amends. His father actually girds up his clothes and just runs after him and meets him on the middle of the road and throws his arms around him and says, Rejoices, my lost son has been found. And he put the, his best clothes on him. He gave him a ring. And then they had a big party, and he celebrated his lost son. And I said, James, that's what God the Father is saying to you because of what Jesus has done for you. He's saying, Come home, James. Come home. And he just wept and wept and wept. And he, we just fell into one another's arms, and I just held a man longer than I'm comfortable holding a man. Um, and uh, after about a minute, um, you know, we kind of stepped back, and James had turned and put his faith in Christ. The reason that the gospel became believable to him is because of inefficient love and because he heard a gospel worth believing. He needed to know that, that there was a, an en endless approval available to him in Christ. And uh, I think about seven days later, um, I got a call that he was in the hospital, went to the hospital, he contracted an unusual disease, and um, uh, I think it was within a few days he died um, <clears throat> and went, went home. He went home to a full, unending, limitless experience of the Father's love. And then at the funeral, I got to stand up and share the gospel with all of his drug addict family and friends and tell them how James turned to God the Father in his perfect approval uh, in just days before. There was a, a grandmother who was actually a believer. I think it was a grandmother. She came down and she, uh, she came and shook my hand. She said, Pastor, thank you so much for, for loving James. We were, we, when he died, we were, we were beside ourselves in despair because we knew that James didn't know Jesus but now we know that he does. And so we're, it's turned to, our mourning has turned to rejoicing. Man, that's awesome. The gospel of adoption, right? Uh, no 12-week program, <laughs> no tract. Just listening to people's stories, 
discerning what good news they need to hear that would enter their bad news, right? And we, we all have the book. It's the Bible. <laughs> you know, the gospel metaphors are all in there. And uh, we just need to do the hard work of denying ourselves and climbing into other people's stories and listening to their story, asking them meaningful questions, and, and then begin to surface uh, the needs in their life. How about uh, the gospel of justification? The uh, problem of justification is how can an unrighteous person become righteous before a righteous God, right? Uh, no one is righteous, not even one. So this is the great dilemma before a holy God. Um, we need acceptance that we cannot manufacture by ourselves. And Jesus uh, makes a way for that perfect acceptance in his perfect obedience, life, death, resurrection. So... <clears throat> um, uh, my wife actually met Andrea uh, in a store of some sort, saw some fabric on her purse, and they hit it off and started talking. I've never done that. I've never looked at a purse and kind of climbed into a conversation. But my wife is a seamstress, and so she makes dresses. And it's funny how God will use your hobbies, right? Uh, the, the, it's, it's, Christians are notorious for creating Christian ghettos. Like, uh, if, if you like to read books, like you form a Christian book club. It's like, well, dude, there's a better book club, just, you know, the city sponsors downtown. Uh, if you, you like running, you form a Christian running club, right? Isolate yourself from the world. Well, there was, there's a running club in town. You could just run with a bunch of non-Christians. You know, that might be a good idea. You know, softball, hey, Christian softball. You know, we make Christian alternatives that are worse, right? Why don't we just do the good ones, right? So um, anyway... Robbie's talking to Andrea, and, and uh, they begin to talk, and she has some troubles, and she says, you know what, but I know it's going to work out because the universe has an answer. So she's got this kind of pantheistic worldview. And we get to know her, invite her over. My wife's great at just, just inviting people into our lives, probably more than I'd like her to. But, uh, you know, uh, lots of people coming over to the house and getting to know them. And um, eventually she turns to Robbie and says, well, you know, I know that Michael hasn't come over, her husband. Um, she says, well, um, I think Michael should meet meet your husband. I guess we should come to church. And my wife, being a good missionary, says, oh, no, don't go to church, knowing that she, she's been going to church for a long time, being in our home and meeting all our church friends, you know. And, uh, and so she says, why don't you come over for dinner so that he wouldn't miss, meet me as a pastor, but meet me as a real person. So, um, so I came over, and we began to get to know each other. I ended up spending a lot of time with Michael, a lot of time. And um, at lunches, uh, meeting for counseling. Uh, he began to come to the, on Sundays and hear gospel sermons. Uh, he actually read a little book that I wrote on, 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 the, on gospel form discipleship. So he's hearing the gospel preached. He's reading gospel literature. He tells me one Sunday, he's like, hey, Jonathan, guess what? I'm leading my family in prayer uh, before we eat. Huge step for this guy, right? I'm like, man, this is awesome. I can't wait to hear his conversion story. So I like, ask him to go out to lunch. I bring a guy with me who I'm discipling. And uh, we go, we have lunch, and I say, hey, man, Michael, tell me, how are things with Jesus? He says, well, I've got this uh, moral superior at work. Um, he's, uh, he's so much better than I am morally, and uh, I just can't measure up to that. But, you know, but I'm trying, and uh, I'm trying to climb the spiritual ladder. And uh, he talked about some financial issues, and so I, I tried to network with him to try and find him a job to help him meet his physical needs. And then I said, hey, Michael, can I come back to a couple things you said in the conversation? He said, sure. I said, well, you talked about this moral superior. And, uh, 
you know, climbing the spiritual ladder. And I said, Michael, I, I got really bad news for you. You're never going to be moral enough for God. Uh, in fact, I'm not moral enough for God. God is holy and God is perfect. And we're imperfect and unholy. So there's no way to, like, be moral superior enough for God to accept you. The guy's looking down. And I said, but there, there is good news. I said, here's, the, here's what Jesus has to do with your life, Michael. Okay? Jesus climbed down the spiritual ladder. And he died for all of your moral inferiority, right? all of your sins. He died for that. And then if you trust him, he'll forgive you. He'll put you on his back. Then he'll climb back up the spiritual ladder and place you in front of a holy God, fully loved and fully accepted. That's what Jesus has to do with your life. And he kind of looks at me, and he's kind of got this wild, starry eye look in his eyes. And he goes, is it that easy? And I was like, oh, man, it does sound too easy. And I was like, wait, it's called grace. Yes, it's that easy, Michael. And um, I listened to his story, and I heard performance. I heard a longing for acceptance. I got to know him over, over a number of months. It's been years now. And he, uh, he manages his family business for a while, didn't do a very good job, didn't feel accepted in his family. Um, I, I sensed in that, in that scenario this kind of, you know, moral, superior, latter thing, this whole idea, desire to be accepted. Now, here's the interesting thing. He was an artist, kind of Jewish family, but didn't really claim uh, Judaism at all, uh, was an actor, loved to act. His wife is kind of new age. Like, this, these are very irreligious people. Like, they have no reason to perform for God because they don't believe in God, because they don't, you know, they're not into religious habits. And yet, deep in this secular man's heart was a drive to perform for God. Here's something that we need to learn. Just because we're preaching gospel sermons, uh, we're distributing gospel literature, doesn't mean people are hearing the gospel. What we need is we need to be people who love people enough to open up their story and to show them how the gospel applies to their life. And that hadn't happened for him yet. We need to be discerning enough to get into a, a secular person's life and show them that they are legalists at heart and need to be liberated by grace into uh, the open, uh, infinite acceptance of God the Father. We can't assume that preaching does the job. We need to walk into people's lives. Remember, discipleship is sharing your life and the gospel with others. We need to share our lives with people who don't know Jesus. Ask them questions climb into their story, and then look for the bad news and how the infinitely awesome news of the gospel intersects with their life. Gospel justification. Make sense? So we're just going through some of the gospel metaphors in Paul's writings and considering how might we uh, appropriate the, the, the gospel metaphor that intersects with the longings, the fears, the hopes, the dreams of people in our lives. Uh, listening, and then in the last few minutes, so to speak, knowing what to say. <clears throat> I told you the story of um, the, the guy that was in the hospice, right? Um, I knew him for two years, and it wasn't until he was on his deathbed that he turned to Christ. And it was a Saturday afternoon again. It's like God's trying to teach me something. It was Saturday afternoon that I went to the, the Christopher house to see him. 
And uh, I, I wanted to do, part of me wanted to do something else, I'll be honest. Yeah. But I, I, submit, I submitted to the, the, the call of the Spirit. It's funny, I actually didn't even end up at the Christopher house. I was supposed to go to his house because he was discharged. Remember, Scott had cancer and, you know, intellectual uh, gay guy from New England. Um, I went to his house, and he had just left there and been transferred to the Christopher house. And so while I was there, I met one of those stray uh, drug, drug addicts in his house. And I had heard about this guy. His name was Stephen. And, um, you know, I, I kind of just want to get on with it, right? I see Stephen, and I walk up, and I was like, find out. I get the information, like, oh, Scott's somewhere else. So, like, efficiency says go to the somewhere else, right? <laughs> and we'll kind of go, like, name drop Jesus and then be done, right? But this man is just so busted up. Like, he can't, he can't, he's shaking, he can't stand still, he's always walking around like this. Like, he's just so dominated by his sin. And so the, the Holy Spirit was like, slow down, Jonathan, slow down. I ended up standing outside with him for like an hour, hour and a half, and got to talk to him about his life, about rejection from his family, about stupid stuff that he had done in his life. We got to the resurrection. He's like, that's really hard for me. I was like, well... It's hard for a lot of people, you know? I mean, the idea that a man would rise from the dead is just inconceivable. Like, we don't see that happen. And we were, I was able to talk through some of the plausibility of the, gave him a little book on the resurrection. He gave me a little Linton booklet that he got somewhere. He's like, oh, you read mine and I'll read yours. You know, got to pray for him. He had been the caretaker for Scott, so he had been changing him and caring for him and staring into his skull and all the guts and cleaning out all the mucus. I'm like, this guy is so compassionate challenging me, teaching me, but just so far from Christ and uh, was able to share the gospel with him. But I had to slow down. You know, I had to inconvenience myself um, and praise God that he prevailed on my heart and, and got to spend that time with him. So I went to the funeral for Scott, saw Stephen there, gave him a big hug. He just lost it. And uh, man, I, I hope that, that guy wakes up to the hope of the gospel, the new creation. So hopefully this is helpful, you know, just I, I want us to kind of become more culturally discerning about the metaphors that people need in life and be more personally engaged um, as we share the gospel with others. Now, when we do this long relational road evangelism, I'm not trying to say that you can't share the gospel in the elevator, right, <laughs> or on the airplane. Like, you know, what I'm trying to say is come out from the, the pressure cloud and come under the spirit, right? The pressure cloud beats you up all day, strikes you with lightning, makes you feel guilty. The spirit just prompts you. And maybe the spirit's not prompting you to share the gospel with someone on a plane. It's okay. Like you're free in Christ, right? Like, I mean, the, the spirit liberates us into freedom. And maybe, maybe your time would be spent better doing something else. Maybe studying the gospel, maybe praying, maybe sleeping. It was Spurgeon that said the holiest thing you can do is take a nap sometimes right? Uh, rest in Christ. Like, we, the, the gospel frees us to rest in Christ because Christ does all the work, right? And we strap on burdens that are way too big, God-sized burdens that only the Spirit can carry. And that's, that, that burden of conversion is not ours, friends. We have the responsibility of evangelism, but the Spirit has the burden of conversion. We just get to announce the good news, inconvenience ourselves, climb into people's stories, and share the gospel. Right. Gospel metaphors. Maybe an example on this kind of momentary kind of, you know, 
on the spot. I went, uh, walked into Bird's Barbershop. Um, <clears throat> you know, Austin's part of the counterculture. So the Bird's Barbershop, you walk in, they ask you if you want a beer or a water, and then they give you a pair of 3D glasses so you can make out all the stuff on the walls, right? And uh, <clears throat> you rock in and you rock out. Okay, that's the way Bird's Barbershop rolls. So I'm rolling into Bird's, and uh, the, the lady that usually cuts my hair isn't there, so I sit down with another one. Another lady, her name's Amber, and uh, just getting to know her, talking about life, you know, what do you do? Well, you know, preach sermons and love the city and just kind of tell her what we're doing. And she's like, wow, I never heard of a church that cares about the city and stuff. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. I was like, well, do you have any religious background? You know, what are your thoughts on all this stuff? She's like, oh, I, went to, I went to church. Like, I think my grandma took me until I was like eight or nine. But I, I just realized it was irrelevant to my life, and so I've never been to church since, you know, I don't really think about it. But, but, but I'm interested in what you guys are doing. Can you tell me more about it? So I told her more about it, and she, you could tell that she was really engaged. You know, you have these conversations with people. It's like they really are curious, and, um, and so she kept asking questions, and I could tell that she was impressed at some level, and so I, I just said to her, Amber, listen, um, uh, I, I want you to know that you shouldn't be impressed with me because I'm not, I'm not a great person. Um, our church isn't a great church. If you join us on a Sunday, you probably won't be impressed, you know? Um, the, the reason we do all this isn't because we're impressive people, but because we have an impressive Savior. And his name is Jesus. And I've had a personal, profound encounter with Jesus. And when I encountered him, I just knew that he was real. And I put my faith in God, and I just t told her some of my conversion story. Now, this was in the span of, what, 30, 40 minutes at, at the barbershop, you know? Um, we talk about what we're taken with. And I was, I was enjoying my union with Christ. There's the metaphor. I was enjoying, we're always in union with Christ, but sometimes we drift from it, right? And we, we act as though there's more meaningful union with other things, like what people think of us or, or whatever. But I remember just being so, like, in the chair, just being so taken with Christ and what he'd done for me that I couldn't help but go ahead and talk about it. I didn't wait for the long relational road of evangelism. We didn't have her over and, like, you know, she'd meet all of our church friends and have parties and just, like, do all that kind of stuff. Just kind of just share the gospel with her on the spot. That we talk about what we're taken with. And sometimes the Spirit's going to prompt you to do the, you know, share the gospel in an elevator, airplane, or in a barbershop. But a lot of times, it's just the long road of inefficient gospel metaphors, lots of questions, and loving people into Jesus. Right? Um, so that's union with Christ. Uh, I, I shared out of my union with Christ, and I called her into union with Christ, a profound, personal encounter with Christ. And I, and I, and I told her I wanted that for her. Right. Um, so I hope, hope you can see that we're, we're, I'm just trying to kind of chart a path of culturally discerning, winsome, um, uh, personally meaningful gospel communication, right? And, and as you probably have seen, this is, incidentally, this is great for Christians. Like, <laughs> you know, if you don't have any non-Christian friends, and start practicing on your Christians, right, your Christian friends. And, and start to, you know, looking for which gospel metaphor might set them free, communicate love, help them hope. You know, people are looking for all kinds of things. So God has called us as a kingdom of priests to listen to people and to minister grace in specific ways. And there are people in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your church that need grace in a specific way. And just the, the gospel of Jesus died for your sins, band-aid, isn't, isn't what people are looking for. And a lot of times when you do that, people don't even hear what we mean, you know. 
But when we slow down and we listen to them and we listen to their hopes, their fears, and their dreams, all of a sudden we can inject gospel serum that comes into the lifeblood of, of their whole story and it reanimates them and it gives them hope and acceptance and approval and love. And most importantly, it gives them Christ who is all those things for them that nobody or no other thing can be.